Amen. All right. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles. Turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. We're going to be in the Gospel of John. John chapter 14 today. And as most of you know, this is the third and final week of our brief little mini-series. And I know it's a little late for, to give the series a title since we're at the end of it. Um, but Kyle texted me yesterday and he was like, I've got to post this online. What do we call this? So I said, let's call it Revealing the Trinity. And Kyle really liked that. <laughs> so... That's what we've been talking about. And the last two weeks we've been in the gospel, the, uh, the book of Joel in the Old Testament. And we've been seeing how the Trinity is a gospel doctrine. There are clues and pointers and little foreshadowings and inklings of the Trinity in the Old Testament if you take it in isolation. The Trinity isn't really fully revealed till you get to the New Testament when you see Christ and the Spirit. And once the fulfillment happens, and then you can stand on this side of the fulfillment and look back through the lens of Christ and the Spirit like glasses, then all of a sudden the Trinity in the Old Testament becomes crystal clear and you see all three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, all over the place. The Trinity is a gospel doctrine. It's the way God has always been. He didn't become a Trinity with the beginning of the New Testament. He's always been that way. But first and foremost, the Old Testament emphasizes that there's one true and living God, Yahweh. And then the New Testament emphasizes that, and this one true and living God has a Son and a Spirit who are somehow one God with the Father, the mystery of the Trinity. So we saw in, in a really brief overview of Joel the, a prophecy of the coming of Christ and the coming of the Spirit and how... They are all three members of this thing we call the Trinity. Well, now we come to Trinity Sunday. And it's time to go to the New Testament and see if we can figure out how to put this doctrine together. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. We are in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, and we're going to read together verses 15 to 26. John 14 15 to 26, this is God's holy and inspired word for us, his people. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, 
How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine but the fathers who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is God's holy word for us as people. Let's ask Him to bless our time in His word today. Father, we do ask that you would send your spirit to do what only he can do to make your word living and active and powerful in each of our hearts. That you would take your truth and use it to reveal Jesus to us, to show us more of who you are, and to write that truth upon our hearts and to let it do its mighty work of changing and cleansing and transforming us to be more like Christ and to go here more like Him in our lives as a result of meeting you and seeing you today. Speak, O Lord, we are ready to hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Imagine, you turned on the evening news one day, and the breaking news headline flashes across the screen, Mob, Riots in the Streets in Downtown Honeybrook. And the news anchor comes on and says, We have a helicopter in the air, on location, let's take you there live now and see what's happening. Now, before they cut to that live shot, what do you expect to see given that headline? When you hear about a mob rioting in the streets, what image comes to mind? Now, given recent events in our country, we all have a pretty clear idea of what we're about to see. But now imagine, you're sitting there, eyes wide, mouth open, wondering what in the world is going on in Honeybrook, waiting anxiously to see what, is, what, or what are they going to show us, what could possibly be going on. And as they cut to that live shot, on your screen, to your astonishment, you see one guy holding a sign, running around screaming at people. Now, what would your reaction at that point be? (laughs) 
I think we would all be a little bit confused. We would say, okay, the headline says, mob riots in the streets, and there's one protester? We would think somebody down at the news station needs to get a dictionary because one person, that's not a mob. We all understand that to have a mob, at the very least, you have to have more than one person. By definition, one person is not a mob. In the late 4th century in church history, One of the great defenders of the Nicene Creed was a church father named Gregory of Nyssa. Gregory of Nyssa. Nyssa was a town in modern-day Turkey. Gregory of Nyssa. Gregory said, we should think about the word God the way we think about the word mob. We understand that a mob includes, by definition, a plurality of persons within it. Gregory says it's the same with God. If you imagine a mob and you only picture one protester, you aren't actually thinking about a mob, even if you call it that. And what Gregory was saying in the 4th century as he defends the doctrine of the Trinity is that if you imagine God and you only picture one person, you aren't actually thinking about God, even if you call it that. If we understood the word God correctly, Gregory insists, we would recognize that God, by definition includes a plurality of divine persons. That's the Christian claim. The doctrine of the Trinity is definitional to God. It isn't just some nice New Testament seasoning on Old Testament monotheism. Isn't that nice? Let's spice it up a bit. No. God is the Trinity. God is the Trinity, one and three, three and one. As we unpack this doctrine of the Trinity this morning, I want us to break it down into its most basic parts and explain it as simply as I can. And then we're going to make some applications of this doctrine to how we experience fellowship with this God. So that's where we're going. So let's begin with this question. It's point one on your insert. Let's begin with this question. How many gods is Yahweh? How many gods is Yahweh? And how should we even approach answering a question like that? Because it's a harder question than it seems at first. Now Gregory of Nyssa wrote a book defending the doctrine of the Trinity, and he called it Not Three Gods. Not a very catchy title. It's even less catchy in Greek. Not Three Gods. And in this book, Gregory tries to explain why Christian teaching does not lead to a belief in three gods. 
So here's the problem that we are trying to solve this morning. The doctrine of the Trinity, as you might have guessed, consists of three points. Of course it does. You know, I used to say that real Trinitarians pronounce the word God with three syllables. One word, three syllables. And down south, we're pretty good at that. So here's the doctrine of the Trinity. Three basic points. Number one, there are three co-equal, co-eternal, fully divine persons. There are three co-equal, co-eternal, fully divine persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're co-equal. That means they have always existed with each other forever and ever and ever from all eternity before creation was even a flicker in God's eye, if you will. Even if creation had never happened, no creatures, no salvation, nothing but God forever and ever, the three persons have always existed with each other. They are co-eternal. And they're all equal with each other. One's not more God than the other. Two of them together aren't more God than the third. They're all perfectly equal and fully, 100% divine. The Father isn't one-third of God. The Spirit's not the second third. The Son is a third. No. Each person is 100% fully and entirely and infinitely God all by Himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Number two. The three persons are distinct individuals and are not identical to one another. They are distinct. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. They're different. One can say, I'm the Father and you are the Son. You are the Spirit. I am the Spirit, you are the Son, you are the Father. They're three distinct persons. They're not the same person playing three different roles or something. Just like someone could be a father and a husband and a son. But he's just one person who has these three different relationships. That's not what God's like at all. Three distinct eternal persons. They're three different fully divine persons. Number three. There is only one God. Now, can you see why Gregory had to write his book? Because that sure doesn't sound like one God. Wait, 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 wait a second. So there are three, three divine persons. Each one's fully God. They're not identical to each other, but there's only one God? Sounds like you got three gods, Christians. I'm, I'm sorry. Sounds like you got three gods. And in... The ancient Greco-Roman world, when this doctrine is being wrestled with and defended back in the beginning of church history, in the midst of a pagan, polytheistic culture, this sounded just like polytheism. you got three gods, we have 15 or 20, you've just got three. The difference is numerical. But we all agree there's multiple gods, right? And Gregory says, no, no. There's only one God. That's why he had to write his book. So what do we say to this? How does this, how does this fit? 
How does 1 plus 1 plus 1 equal 1? Right? Is it just a math problem? Are Christians just that bad at math? How many gods is Yahweh? Is he one or three? Make up your mind. Well, the explanation for why we don't believe in three gods is this. Although the three divine persons are not identical to one another, they are identical to the same divine being. There's only one God because there is only one divine being, one divine essence. But that one divine being exists as three persons. Within the one being of God, like in a mob, there is a plurality of persons inside of it. Now that's a mind bender. <laughs> Got to go to seminary nine years to get that one. No. Like me. No. It's a mind bender. All right? It's hard to wrap your head around that. But let's try to make some sense of it. Here's the key to understanding this. This is the key. The key is to make a distinction that every one of you already knows and every one of you are living by right this second. It's the distinction between being and person. The distinction between being and person. You already know this. Think about the pew that you're sitting in. It's got being. It's real. It actually exists. You're not sitting in midair. You're sitting in a being. A pew. And the difference between being and person is this. If you sit in the pew, nothing happens. But if you sit in your neighbor's lap, you're going to get thrown on the floor. Why? The reason is your, na your neighbor is a person and your pew isn't. But they're both beings. Person is something extra. It's something additional to being. You can have lots of beings. This is a being. My Bible's a being. This water's a being. But there are a lot of people up here. Just one, as far as I can tell. Just one of me up here. Just one person up here. Lots of beings. Right? Person is something extra that you add to being to make it a person. Your pew is an impersonal being. But you are a human being. But you are a being that has something else besides being. Something your pew lacks. Personhood. You have personhood. Being plus person equals a human being. And that's why human beings are persons. But now a human being... In a human being, you just have one person. In a human being, you have one human person in one human being. And there are billions of human beings, and that's why there are billions of people. But God is one divine being, not three divine beings. 
There aren't three divine beings, five divine beings, ten divine... No, there's one divine being. But that one divine being exists as three persons, not one person. Three distinct persons who are still the same single being. Humans are one person in one being. One in one. God is three persons in one being. Three in one. God in three persons as we sing. So how many gods is Yahweh? He's just one. Just one. I heard one Bible teacher say it this way. It really helped me. I think it'll help you. God is one what and three who's. If you want to know what God is, you don't talk about three things. You talk about one thing. What is God? He is the one single divine being and there are no others. And if you want to know who that one God is, you can't give a singular answer. Who is that one God? He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yahweh is one God only because He is one being only. And Yahweh is also three persons who equally, fully, and eternally share that one being in common. Gregory calls this a community of essence. There is one divine essence and a community of persons, three to be exact, who share that essence together in perfect, undivided unity. The Trinity is one what? But he's three who's. Now before we move on to our next point, I want to make something absolutely clear. I have not solved the mystery of the Trinity. You'd want to fire me if I thought I had. I haven't solved anything today. I've only described it. I've only described the Trinity. Hopefully the doctrine makes a little more sense to all of us right now. But we're talking about the infinite depths of God's being and the incomprehensible mystery of His inner life. We can know some of that mystery. It's revealed in Scripture. But we will never fathom its infinite riches. It's like trying to hug a mountain and get your arms all the way around it. You can't do it. You can hug a little bit of the mountain, but if you think you're going to get your fingers to touch on the other side, you're kidding yourself. And that's a mountain. Here we're talking about the infinite, eternal, almighty God. We can know some of the mystery, but we'll never be able to wrap our minds around the whole thing. When we stand at the foot of this glorious God and we contemplate His one being and His three persons, 
There is only one appropriate response. And it's not skepticism. And it's not speculation. It's worship. When we reach the summit of human knowledge and we hit the outer limits of our capacity to understand this God, the response at that point can only be one thing. To put our hands over our mouths and to bow on our knees and to adore the mystery in silence. Let's move on to our application. Some application of this doctrine of the Trinity. I got two points of application. The first is the application of the Trinity to prayer. To prayer. We all affirm the doctrine of the Trinity as this abstract idea. But as long as it remains an abstract idea and it never touches our lived experience between the Sundays, we will slip into the mistake of treating the Trinity like a complicated piece of useless academic theology that makes no difference to our real regular old lives. And when that happens, we will inevitably leave the Trinity behind and begin to live functionally heretical lives. Functionally heretical. We won't mean to. We won't go around denying the doctrine. You know, we'll tip our cap to the Trinity. Yeah, Father, Son, and Spirit's in the Bible somewhere. Sure, why not? But we won't live like it's a reality. We'll leave the doctrine behind and become functional heretics. We will make the great error, accidentally, accidentally perhaps, but we will make this great error of acting like the Trinity is just a bunch of book learning for like theologians and seminary nerds. And it's not for us. It's not for real Christians living day to day in the grind. But as a Christian, you must never allow yourself to fall into this mindset. If you do, you will find yourself thinking about God and relating to God as though He were only one person. And that's not Christianity. For example, when you pray to God, who are you talking to? Who are you talking to? Think about your own time alone with God in prayer. Have you ever thought to yourself something like this? You're in prayer. Your hands are folded. Your eyes are closed. And you just think, oh, it's just me and God. Right here, right now, alone in this moment. Just the four of us. Or do you think it's just the two of us? Now, of course, there's only one God. So maybe, maybe you could say that you and the one divine being is just the two of us. Maybe. But the problem with that is you can't take the being and leave the persons behind. The being of God I like, Father, Son, and Spirit you can keep. Me and the being of God will be just the two of us. 
You can't take the being and leave the persons out. There's no such thing. Being and person are inseparably united. Though they're distinct, they are inseparably united. They are inseparably one. If it's just you and that one protester, you're not in a mob. Likewise, if it's just you and a one-person God, you don't have the Trinity. And if you don't have the Trinity, that's not God you're talking to. We must remember that God, by definition, is three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that means... That when you think about God, and especially when you pray to God, you should always have in mind, explicitly in mind, one of the three persons, specifically and individually. Or you should have in mind all three persons together within the unity of the one divine being they have in common. So you and the Father, that's just the two of you. You and the Son, Jesus, that's just the two of you. You and the Holy Spirit, yeah, that's just the two of you. And that's perfect. That's perfectly biblical, perfectly right. That is just the two of you. Me and the Father, me and the Son, or me and the Spirit. Individually, yes, that's just the two of us. But you and God, in general, without specifying one of the persons, that's just the four of us. That's just the four of you. God is three persons. Now, doesn't this fundamentally change the way that you pray to God and think about God every time you bow your head? I mean, this is not some textbook doctrine for those theologians and those seminary nerds. For PhDs and people who are just brains with legs to take them to the next meeting or the next argument. This is for real Christians. This is for you. The Trinity is for you. Every day of your life. Every time you bow your head. Because this is your God, Christian. The Trinity changes everything. Every time you have a thought about God, or pray to God, or relate to God in some way, this alters it. It's not just me and this other person. It's me and these three persons who are one being, one God, but three persons, and I can have a relationship with all three of them. I can know all three of them. I can pray to all three of them. And they can have fellowship with me. This just this transforms daily Christian experience to make it biblical, to make it Trinitarian, like it was always supposed to be. And this brings us to our last point this morning. Final point. We've seen how the Trinity applies to our prayer life. But now let's see how the Trinity applies to our fellowship with God in a more general way. And this is broader than... Fellowship is broader than just prayer all by itself. Fellowship is all the ways that we relate to God. All the different ways we relate to God, not just prayer. So, finally, let's go to our text. In our text in John 14... Jesus teaches us 
how to relate to God like a Trinitarian. And who better to tell us how to do that than somebody who's been there? So let's focus now on just two points from our text about fellowship with God in this passage. Two points. We could go a hundred different directions here because John 14 is just explosive. But let's just, let's just limit ourselves to these two, two points. Fellowship with God has two aspects to it. Two aspects to it. It has an outer aspect and it has an inner aspect. Outer and inner. Look at verses 16 and 17. Jesus says, And I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper... To be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He dwells with you and he will be in you. Speaking of the Holy Spirit. Two aspects. The outer aspect is the spirit dwells with you. Me and the Spirit, external. The Spirit's out here, I'm here, and He's with me. Outer aspect. Inner aspect is the Spirit will dwell in me. You see the difference? He's with me, like alongside. Outer aspect, and He's also within me. On the inside, inner aspect. And so let's call these two aspects, the inner aspect we'll, be, we'll call union internal union with God on the inside. And the outer aspect we can call communion. Me and the persons of the Trinity in a group. Communion. Union on the inside, communion on the outside. Inner and outer. Got it? Union and communion with God are at the heart of the Christian faith and the Christian life. And they are entirely Trinitarian. So let's see both of these briefly. First of all, communion with God. Outer aspect, communion with God is Trinitarian. Verses 16 and 17 say that the Holy Spirit will live with, dwell with, and make His home with each one of us forever. And now look at verses 21 and 23. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So we're talking about real disciples here. People who have the words of Jesus and keep those words of Jesus. That's the true disciple, the person who really loves Jesus. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one who loves me. And check this out. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So the true disciple is the one who truly loves Jesus. And if you love Jesus, you will keep his commandments. And if you love Jesus, what does this say? It says the Father and the Son will both love you. And Jesus will manifest himself to you. Jesus promises to meet with you personally. If you love Jesus, the Father and the Son will love you. And Jesus will have communion with you. But there's more. 
Verse 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. There it is again, the true disciple. And my Father will love him, and we, the two of us, we will come to him and make our home with him. So the true disciple who loves Jesus is loved by the Father and the Father and the Son as well as the Holy Spirit, verse 17. They will come and make their home with you. They will adopt you into their family. They will literally make their home with you. They will bring you into the house. They've got a room for you in the family. And you will dwell with them and they will dwell with you. This is why this sermon's called Life in the Trinity. This is life in the Trinity. Just the four of you. This is amazing. You are invited in. You are invited in to share in the infinite, eternal joy and love of the inner life of the Trinity. If you love Jesus, if you're united to Jesus, you believe the gospel, if you're a believer today, what is this promise? You get to participate in the inner relationships of the Trinity. You can't become a fifth, a fourth member of the Trinity. You can't join the being of God. You can't get into the being and become God. You can't get into the being, but you can get into the relationship. You can share in an eternal, infinite, perfect, explosive, powerful, mind-boggling Joyous relationship. Imagine how much the Father and Son and Spirit love each other and treasure each other. What kind of eternal fellowship that is. And you are invited in. That's part of what salvation is about. Communion with God. And it gets to start now. It gets to start now as you have fellowship with God. Jesus came for many reasons. But the chief reason was to give you a chance to share in his relationship with his father, to be a child of God. Amazing. That's the outer aspect of fellowship with God. It's communion with the Trinity. But there's also now the inner aspect, and we'll come to a landing on this one. Union. With God, not just communion on the outside, but internal union with God. Look at verses 19 and 20. Jesus says, Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. There's the hope of the resurrection hidden right there. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father. And you are in me, and I am in you. All this in and out language that Jesus uses can be confusing. But his point is this. You, when you believe in Jesus, you are united to the risen, reigning, living Jesus. In your soul, you are knit together with His, bone of His bone and flesh of His flesh. You are one with Jesus. Down in your being, 
You are united to Him. You dwell within Christ and He dwells within you. You are united. And through that union with Christ and through the Holy Spirit, the whole Trinity dwells within you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are united in your very being with the Trinity. Not in a way that turns you into God, but in a a way that transforms you into the image of Christ. He says at the end of verse 19, Because I live, you also will live. The eternal life of the Trinity gets down on the inside of you and it absolutely changes you and conforms you into the image of Christ so that He is the firstborn among many brethren. Imagine the eternal light and life of the Trinity shining into your soul, banishing your sin, changing you to live like Jesus and love like Jesus and look like Jesus, forming in you the eternal character and goodness of your Savior, the beauty of your Savior, so that you just start exuding it, so that life and light starts coming out of you. He's changing you. And eventually that light and that life will banish even death itself and you will be immortal and raised like Jesus, conformed to Him in the likeness of His death and in His resurrection. The Trinity down on the inside is what enables us to live for Him. This is life with the Trinity Life in the Trinity and the life of the Trinity in you. This is the glory of salvation. So I hope, I've tried my best this morning, I hope it's clear how amazing and how vital this doctrine of the Trinity is for your Christian life and for the church and for the Christian faith as a whole. You and I must concentrate and always remember to relate to God as one what and three who's. One being who is three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God forever. All of our prayers, all our fellowship, all our thoughts about God must be fully and explicitly Trinitarian. Because everything in Christianity is Trinitarian, from first to last. Because that's who God is. No Trinity, no Christianity. No Trinity, no Gospel. No Trinity, no God. We are Christians. We are Christians. This is our faith. We believe the Apostles' Creed. This is the God we worship. This is the God who loves us. This is the God who saves us. This is the God who will dwell with us in perfect union and perfect communion forever. Let us give Him all the glory. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we come before you this morning as our Father. And we thank you that you have revealed something of this mystery to us so that we can know you as you truly are. I pray that you would help the truth of your mysterious being, the truth of your one being in three persons to get down into the very core of who we are so that we begin to think about you and relate to you and live for you as Trinitarians. To remember it's just the four of us. That you are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our one true God. And that, Father, we would worship you through Jesus Christ, whom you sent to us to be our Savior. And that we would lean upon your Holy Spirit, whom you and the Son have sent to be in us and with us forever. And that we would that we would just bask in this communion that we have with you. And that we would lean upon this union that we have with you. You, have, you are with us. You are in us and outside of us. You surround us and you fill us, O oh God. And I pray that you would transform us to love you, to seek you, to live for you, to be more like our Savior and help us to look forward to our great inheritance when we will rise the way Jesus rose and leave the grave behind us and we will rise to be with you, Father, Son, and Spirit, in perfect union and communion forever and ever where there is fullness of joy that will never end. Oh, we long for that day. And we ask that you would fill us with hope and joy that it's closer than we think. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.